I not the Lord. If I turn the other cheek, is my ass then going get? You? From time you was little bit, you pick up one ugly bug and call it beautiful. You stop for chat with every sore foot man in the street. Even how you is big woman, come in like you forget what people can do. Gal, you too trusting. Listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. Hello, this is Jennifer Williams, Program Manager at the Scottish Poetry Library, and I'm delighted to be uh, sitting in the sunshine in Scotland, a rare occurrence, with the poet Sharon McCallum, who has come all the way from America to visit us for a little while here in Scotland. Shara is a Jamaican-born, American-based poet, and uh, she's had quite a number of books out. There's a fifth coming out in 2017 in January in the US and spring in the UK. And she currently lives and teaches in Pennsylvania at Bucknell University, where she also directs the Stadler Center for Poetry. Uh, and she is just in the process of working on a very exciting new book project, uh, which we'll get to talk a little bit more about, I hope, because it uh, it's quite close to probably a lot of people's hearts in Scotland, so it'll be very interesting to uh, hear a bit more about that. But I think to kick off, Shara, we would just love to hear a poem, and we'll talk a bit more. Thanks, Jennifer. Thank you for having me here. And I also am delighted to be at the Scottish Poetry Library in its newly refurbished space. <laughs> I was here a year ago when it was just about to close for its renovations, <laughs> and it's beautiful. Um, I will start with the first poem in my third collection, which um, is called This Strange Land, and I think that you'll hear why. I'm not going to say too much in terms of glossing, I'm just going to read it. Psalm for Kingston. If I forget thee, O Jerusalem. Psalm 137. City of Jack Mandora, may not choose none. Of Anansi prevailing over mongoose, bred a rat, puss, and dog. Anansi, saved by his wits, in the midst of chaos and against all odds. Of body big boy stories told by peacock strutting boys. Hush, hush, but loud enough to be heard by anyone passing by the yard. City of market women at halfway tree, with baskets atop their heads or planted in front of their laps, squatting or standing with arms akimbo, susuing with one another, clucking their tongues, calling in voices of pure sugar, come doo see the pretty bag I have for you, then kissing their teeth when you saunter off. City of school children in uniforms playing dandy shandy and brown girl in the ring, tra la 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 la, eating bun and cheese and bulla and mangoes, juice sticky and running down their chins, bodies arced in laughter, mouths agape, heads thrown back. City of old men with roomy eyes, crouched in doorways, on verandas, paring knives in hand, carving wood pipes or peeling sugarcane, of younger men pushing carts of roasted peanuts and oranges, calling out as they walk the streets, and night draws near, of coconut vendors 
with machetes in hand. City, where power cuts left everyone in sudden dark, where the kerosene lamp's blue flame wavered on kitchen walls, where empty bellies could not be filled, where no eggs, no milk, no beef today echoed in shanty towns, around corners, down alleyways. City where Marley sang, Ja would never give the power to a bald head, while the bald heads reigned. Where my parents chanted down Babylon, Fire, Bon, Ja, Rastafari, Selassie, where they paid weekly Jews, saving for our passages back to Africa. While in their beds, my grandparents slept fitfully, dreaming of America. City that lives under a long memoried sun, where the gunmen of my childhood are today's dons, ruling neighborhoods as fiefdoms, where violence and beauty still lie down together. City of my birth, if I forget thee, who will I be singing the Lord's song in this strange land? So this is, so we were just talking before we started recording a little bit about the notion of identity and yeah. homeland and place and, mm -hmm. and how if you're someone who was born in one place and then lives in another, how home becomes a world of the imagination as much mm -hmm. as it is, uh, you know, it's, it's both the place you left and the new place you make your life. And so it's, it can become quite complex. Yeah. Is, this, is this your, is this a memory of your homeland? Is this uh, imagination? Is this real? How, how do you feel about that? Well, it's probably a little bit of all of those things. Mm -hmm. I will just say um, the book begins with an epigraph by Marina Sataila, the Russian poet, mm -hmm. um, which is uh, memory is not, a I think it's memory is not a geographical convention. It's translated, so I don't remember mm -hmm. exactly, but an insistence of memory of home is not a geographical convention, but an insistence of memory and blood. Hmm. And so I was really drawn to that idea in this book, and in that poem in particular, um, of thinking about how memory um, makes your identity cohere, hmm. and that home, in, there's a poem that ends um, with a line um, that home becomes a, uh, memory becomes a synonym for home. So in my personal experience and in my family's experience of leaving Jamaica in the 1970s, my grandparents left and then I left in 81, it was a sense of rupture that caused it. In, uh, it's, it's a long, complicated history to go into, but suffice it to say, there was a lot of um, economic difficulties, civic unrest. There were a lot of the things that I'm cataloging in this point. The point is a litany in some ways of memories and also of um, images that I have reconstructed. Not every single one of them actually happened, but they are the kind of thing in Kingston in particular growing up that, um, that were the, the backdrop of my memories of that place. Some of them are really invented. I mean, um, I know, for example, Dudu is really French Creole and probably doesn't, as, mm -hmm. as somebody pointed out, rightly belong 
in a Jamaican market setting. <laughs> Though my grandmother used to say it, and also because it worked for the music of that line, I kept it. <laughs> so I was, you know, it's not verbatim, but what I would say is, yeah, it's it's a snapshot in some way, and it's a love poem, a complex love poem to the city that birthed me, and certainly birthed me as a poet as well. And I, I, I do think that um, the drawing on that is where the truth is for me of the, of the experience. Mm, and I love that. Can you talk a little bit more about that idea of the birth of your poet self and yeah. how that's connected to that place? Well, I think, you know, what, what I came to understand when I was right around 20, I mean, I was not, I did not think of myself as a poet as a child, though I did write poetry, um, but was really um, a love of poetry had been with me all of my life. Music, um, the Bible, my mother and father were Rastafarians and so read the King James translation of the Hebrew Bible to me every night. So I had those rhythms of Hebrew poetry really in my ear growing up. My father was a musician. Um, I have a lot of Rastafarian songs. So I had this kind of very rich oral tradition I also heard storytelling. I'm maybe a, one of the last generations, just because of my family's particularities, that I grew up as a young child without television. We lived on a commune, a Rastafarian commune. So I had a very, you know, odd, even from 1970s to me. I don't want to pretend that this was somehow happening in Jamaica because I don't want people to get the wrong impression. Lots of Jamaicans have television and, you know, it was <laughs> but we just, in my my parents, you know, upbringing in my in my household didn't. So I had that, and then you know, then I then I also had a love of reading. So those things came together for me in a way to um, create um, a kind of poetry. When I began to think of myself as a poet in my twenties, where I really wanted to draw from all of those traditions, not just the literary tradition in the high sense of you know modernism or even romanticism, which I actually love better. Um, I, I wanted to also honor where I'm from and the peoples that I am from and the place that I'm from. And when I thought about that, I don't know if I thought about it consciously, but it was just always Jamaica that I went back to. That was in my mind, the place. And that hasn't changed very, very much. I mean, not every single point. There's points in this particular collection that are about motherhood that are set in is set, if you will, that I have images from Pennsylvania, which is a different landscape. So I'm not so prescriptive, but I will say that, you know, over and over again, that that's the territory that I um, find most fertile as a poet. When I, when I return to it, I feel that that's what I have to say. And do you, do you still now go back to visit I Personally. do, um, but not as often as I wish. I have a sister who lives in Kingston, and she's always begging me to come. And <laughs> recently, too, it was just, you know, we, we exchanged a, a text when I was here, and I think she's wondering why I'm in Scotland instead. Um, <laughs> um, I would go in December, um, but before that, I haven't been there since 2012. Wow. So I don't go as often as I wish, and there's lots of complicated reasons for that. Um, one is that much of my mother's family migrated to the United States. My husband is American, and we have small children. So that's probably the best explanation I can give, is what roots you to place often is your life, as it, the places it takes you, and the people you love. 
And so I am rooted in America because I love an American and I have American children. Mm -hmm. um, were it not for that, I don't know. I am somewhat, I don't know that I wouldn't have ended up in Jamaica necessarily either, but um, I love just the experience of being in lots of places. Mm -hmm. So, and maybe that's just me and I don't want to make too much of being an immigrant, but there's a rootlessness there and an ironic desire for home. And that pull, I think, is interesting for me to explore as a writer. Mm. Um, even if every moment of my life, I'm certainly not living that. I also just wash dishes too, and you know. <laughs> but as a writer, that those paradoxes of experience are what attract my attention. Of course, things that you can't reconcile. Of course, and the things you dream of while you're washing the dishes. Yeah, <laughs> that too. Exactly. <laughs> well said. Yeah. Yes. Spoken as a true poet. <laughs> One is always living in your head, no matter what you're doing. <laughs> yes. So you were you were partly here, I think, yeah. because you're working on a new project, which is also interesting in yeah. terms of, I think, it very linked to all the things we're talking about. It is. It, it struck me that way. Um, so I'm working on um, a book that has yet to have very much of it written, maybe not even a word of it, actually. All I've been doing so far is thinking about it and taking a lot of notes. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I want to write a book about Robert Burns. And I want to write a book of poems, not fiction, though it does sound very fictional when I tell you the premise. <laughs> um, and if I were a fiction writer, I would write it as a novel, but I'm not. I'm a poet. Um, what I want is to write about the, per the, the thread of Burns' life that is, is, from my understanding, little known. Even in Scotland, I've been asking people this a lot, and I don't think it's a story that's ubiquitous here. Other parts of his life are. This one isn't. Which is that right before the Kilmarnock edition came out, he had planned, and quite seriously planned, to um, migrate um, to Jamaica to work on a slave plantation. And... Um, it is almost a twist of fate or luck or stroke of luck, however you, whatever your belief is, that prevented that from happening, which is that the Kilmarnock edition sold out. And it sold out twice as many subscriptions within weeks as had been sold. So the way it was published, as many people know, is it was a subscription-based um, publication in part to help underwrite it so that the publisher was not worried he was going to lose his shirt. But twice as many copies sold out, they needed to, you know, it could have gone into an immediate second printing. It did end up being reprinted in Edinburgh, where we are right now, etc., etc. All of those wonderful things happened. And then some not wonderful things happened, too, in Burns' life, by the way. It wasn't just this kind of linear trajectory <laughs> from that moment on. But I was really struck by um, that, that almost happening and decided at some point after I heard the story, probably a few months after I was walking, I was actually living in London at the time and had visited Edinburgh and heard that story and went back and one day I was just walking, I did a lot of walking in London and the thought came into my head, I'm sure I'm not the first person to ask this, but it was the first time I did, what would have happened if he did go to Jamaica? And um, being a Jamaican and being of mixed ancestry, that's the question for me that haunted me. That's the story that is a story that is part of my personal history, but that I think is a great part of Scottish and Caribbean history. And that connection between the two um, is what interests me in Burns' story. And so lots of other things about him, the, the, you know, his, his relationships with women is endlessly interesting. <laughs> 
um, and his nationalist ideals and I think how they were put to the test even in Scotland at the time um, as he worked as an excise man for the government, kind of a contradictory position. Um, what would it, what would it that have been like in Jamaica? I think it, a situation of far more extremity actually. What kind of dissembling do you have to do to be um, a slave driver and a poet of, uh, who believes in the humanity of all people? And that is an interesting question to me. Um, it is not the real Burns that I am in any way going to write about, but I am going to, and I have been here to learn every single thing I can about the real one, or at least as far as one can say there's a real Burns, since mm -hmm. he is a fiction too. The myth of the man is also a product of many people's imaginations. Um, but I want to honor that in a way in recasting him in a different landscape. And so that's the next book. I'm only just beginning to write it. I think I probably won't even begin to actually write it till I'm back in America, um, because really I'm here right now to learn and to listen. Will there be a research journey to Jamaica to oh, see the kind of yes. others? Yeah, you know, because I, 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 it just makes me think to to do that. I mean, of course, you've been there many times before, but to do that thought experiment completely, it would be interesting almost to to make that journey and in, with him in your mind, imagine. And that's ex that absolutely right. Mm -hmm. So I'm here for two weeks, and I actually will go to Jamaica for a month in December to do exactly mm -hmm. the to same do that. thing. Yes, and it's not a given, by the way, that just because I'm Jamaican that I know anything about <laughs> plantation Jamaican society mm -hmm. in the detail that I would need to. What I have been doing so far is almost ex exclusively thinking, not exclusively, but almost focused first on acquiring a knowledge of Scottish history and of Burns and of that time period. And so I'm reading biographies and I'm reading letters and journals and you know doing um, the, the field work as it were. I mean it seems it's such a luxury to be a poet or a writer since your job requires you to go and travel and take a, I went yesterday to Inverness so that I could both see the Culloden battlefield which Burns went up to Inverness and saw and then hike um, you know, down from the top of the fall of foyers to the, the shore of Loch Ness and back up again because Burns did that. And I thought to myself, all the way I'm doing this, who would ever get to say this is their job? <laughs> I don't even know if I, I can't say it with a straight face without laughing, you know? But that is what I feel I need. I needed, I'm here because I needed to see what Burns saw in order to recreate him with a degree of um, integrity. I won't say authenticity, I think that's a troubled word in my mind. I don't know who the authentic one of any of us is, but I do think he, I want to do this with a great degree of respect and integrity and ethical stance toward him, and I need to learn in order to do that. And so I've been speaking with incredible scholars and the wonderful poet Rap Wilson, who's mm -hmm. been so generous to me, took me all around Ayrshire. I stayed with him and his, his wife, Margaret, who is the delight of a human being as well. And that was what I needed to go beyond um, Robert Crawford's meticulous and incredible biography of Burns. You know, sort of has been my Bible. Um, and others as well. I'm just mentioning a few. The, the, you know, the folks at the Center for Burns Studies in Glasgow, Kirsten McHugh and Nigel Wiesk, they've all been so generous and welcoming. So. Um, I feel I have been able to, in a sh relatively short time, 
um, augment the reading, you know, just because of the fact that we can learn a lot through the internet doesn't mean, or books, doesn't mean that it's a substitute for meeting with people. Mm -hmm. And everybody I've met with, um, the drivers who have been taking me around, everybody on the trains, anyone who will lend an ear, I accept, <laughs> what do you think of Robert Burns? Mm -hmm. I want all the perspectives, not just the academic perspectives. I want to hear the stories and the, 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 the ones that aren't, according to the scholars, true, that yet keep getting told. Mm. You know, so I'm, so I'm doing that, and I'm very excited about that. I could speak, obviously, at great length. Um, and then I will do the reverse in terms of there is no corollary in terms of a character in Jamaica. She will be imagined entirely. There are going to be women in my book who aren't. Um, probably all of them won't be the Scots women. There will be some Jamaican women who will be made up. But they will also be based on the kind of women who lived in that time, mm. and black women, and slave women. And I need to know more about that history that I only know in brief. Um, I know sketches of it. I have some background in this. I did a PhD in Caribbean literatures and African-American literatures, whereby I am not an expert in history, but you have to know some history mm. to read that literature. The history of the transatlantic slave trade in particular I'm speaking to. However, it's been a long time, and um, so I'm going first to Kingston to look at um, if some of the best maps, actually, of what the plantations would have looked like. I need to understand the spaces of a place in order to recreate them. And that I won't be able to. I'm going to go to Port Antonio, which is where Burns would have ended up had he gone, and coincidentally is my personal favorite part of the island. Mm. So I will spend some time there. Um, whether the Douglas Plantation still exists or not, I will be able to come pretty close to seeing where it might have been. Um, you know, obviously, it's, it's a reconstruction. It is a fiction, even if in poetry. But the more that I feel I can honor the past, then the 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 more that this work will have life in the present. Mm -hmm. And I love I love what you're talking about in terms of the that you need to see, you know, to hear the voices, to see the places in order to conjure. I do. Which is and I'm very, very much a poet of place, mm -hmm. you know. Um, as you might have heard in the poem yes, I read. Yeah. I begin often with images of um, snippets of language, sound. I'm driven a lot by my ear um, and by um, images of place. I think often I'm just jealous of painters, and if I could have been, <laughs> as is this, you know, this gorgeous this, this, painting on the cover of my book, book such a beautiful by Colin Garland. I mean, I am so envious of that, <laughs> you know. And I think maybe this is this is what I would love to do as as a poet too is is have the the, the music of language and a voice meet. Um, image. I mean, that's a very, you know, just a kind of basic technical question, which you may not even have decided yet, but yeah. is, will you, you know, in terms of the form of the poems and the voices and the poems, yeah. will you be, will you be writing in Scots, will you be trying to capture any of the kind mm -hmm. of type of language they might have used at the time, or will they will they speak in contemporary Of voice? course, these are questions I've been thinking about. <laughs> I do have some tentative answers, but until I start writing, it's hard to answer definitively. Cool. Um, some thoughts that I have is that, no, I will not attempt to write in Scots in the way that Rab does or other Scots language poets do. That is beyond what I feel comfortable doing. Um, I'm an English language poet. I do write in Jamaican patois, but that is a patois that I um, have far more access to. Uh, spoke it as a child. My family continued. 
to go back and forth in the way that, that in, in a lot of Jamaican families you speak everything from Jamaican English to whatever standard, you know, British American English. I don't even know what the quote standard English is, but everything in that linguistic range. I in Jamaican vernacular traditions and written traditions, I feel is mine to access and have since I began writing. Um, but I don't feel the same about the Scots language. Um, what I will do, though, to resolve this, and nor do I want to write as a contemporary writer as if I'm speaking in an 18th century idiom, that is not also what I'm going to do. Mm. Um, it's the same problem people have if they're novelists. Again, I've been realizing these are all the, the problems mm. I've created for myself or the problems novelists <laughs> have to solve, right? So and I've never done this before, but I've, I've thought, oh, this is what happens if you set something in Venice and you're an English language writer. What do you do? You're not going to write in you know, Venetian or Italian, <laughs> whatever, you know, um, you're going to write in English. So I'm going to write in English from a mostly 21st, 20th slash 21st perspective of who I am as a poet. Yeah. Having said that, I have every intention of honoring Burns and in creating his voice. So some of the things I've been thinking about is borrowing some of the language from his journals mm -hmm. and poems, though the poems feel very much like a thing off themselves and more comfortable going to his prose. Mm -hmm. Lifting some of that language in collage fashion right into poems yeah. that I write. Yeah. Um, also borrowing his forms. This is something we do as poets mm -hmm. all the while. Um, Standard ha um, Habby, for example, that he wrote, um, The Slave's Lament, those, that song and the structure mm -hmm. of those songs, very much as Langston Hughes does with the blues, I think I have, a, I have an ability there to use form in the way that forms are not, forms are always borrowed. There are always traditions that are being reinvented. You know, the sonnet, the great English form is Italian, as we all know, mm -hmm. right? And so I feel in that sense, a kind of permission as a poet to borrow other forms from any poetic tradition in a way that I just don't feel is, for me, I won't speak to anyone else, um, what I feel a comfortable doing ethically even, mm -hmm. forget aesthetically as a non-Scots speaker. Mm -hmm. I mean, particularly the issue of Scots, which is a very complicated political issue in Scotland. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think when you do that, you run the risk of um, parody of minstrelsy, really. And I'm not, I'm not interested in, in, in doing that at all. So a different avenue for me to get there is to, is to think about form, the collage, the, the standard happy, the, the songs, rather than um, thinking about idiom. Um, will you share another poem? I thought yeah. I might read you something from the book that's coming out next year instead Ooh, of continuing with this. So since this book is very different than, the, than what I read from This Strange Land or um, the Burns Yet to be Titled book. Just my, <laughs> all I keep saying is the Burns book, <laughs> Burns Project. I wouldn't even call it a book yet. Um, this is a book called Mad Woman, and the speaker is, well, she's very mad, <laughs> in the Jamaican sense of very angry, very mm. sad, and very, a little unhinged at times, mm. and um, there's a lot of elegies, there's a lot of grief, and so I think I will begin, since we were speaking about memory with the first poem in this book, there's actually, um, this isn't the first one, there's a little tiny poem that's after Hadrian um, called Little Soul, and I'm going to skip that and read what is 
the first poem. That, that's a poem many people have rewritten over time. It's a, it's a short, short fragment from Hadrian that many poets have translated, so to speak. Um, but then I'll, maybe since I'm speaking of it, it's short. I'll read that and then I'll read the first poem in the collection. This is Little Soul after Hadrian. Little soul, kind, wandering, body's host and guest, look how you've lowered yourself, moving in a world of ice, washed of color, my girl, what compelled you once is no more. Memory. I bruise the way the most secretive, most tender part of a thigh exposed, purples then blues. No spit shine shoes, I'm dirt you can't wash from your feet. Wherever you go, know I'm the wind accosting the trees, the howling night of your sea. Try to leave me, I'll pin you between a rock and a hard place. We'll hunt you even as you race your tracks with the tail ends of your skirt. You think I'm gristle, begging to be chewed? No, my love, I'm bone. Rather, the sound bone makes when it snaps. That ditty lingering in you like ruin. So it's a, it's a darker collection. Mm. <laughs> there are some moments of light and different tonalities. There's some humor, there's satire. I'm interested in the tonal range, particularly that dramatic monologues afford uh, for me as a, a writer. Whenever I go back to the lyric, which is memory, is a poem I love, uh, the lyric poem I love very much, I do find that I tend to sound the elegiac note most. So there are poems in dramatic monologue form here, as there have been in all my books that help me to open up my range tonally as a poet. Um, many of them are in other voices, but sort of um, aspects of myself. There's a poem in the collection, a long one called 10 Things You Might Like to Know About the Mad Woman, which is a list poem that has, it, uh, I clearly can't count since it's <laughs> the, the number 10. 10 very, very loosely, and makes fun of itself, you know, so um, it's, it's the most sort of self-conscious poem in the collection. It's self-consciously using my own autobiography. Um, when I was writing this book, as with many of the, the poems that I write, I hear voices speaking to me. I know that sounds like a strange thing. And my, my father actually suffered from mental illness, so I have to be careful when I say it. But I mean it in the sense that I write the poem to figure out who's talking to me in a way. And what, usually it's a she, but I'll say he or she has to say. And this collection was very much that. It took me a long time to figure out who the mad woman was, and finally I settled on the idea, it was, she's you. <laughs> mm. You know, she's some part of you that you don't want to reckon with, your anger, your grief, um, the thing that you keep masking. And so, uh, as much as I can, I've tried to use, ironically, the mask of a figure to unmask myself. Wow. Yeah. Because uh, we... And again, we were talking about that a bit earlier, but there's something interesting, I think, in, in a poet's way of talking about everything they see or their outward experience or mm -hmm. empathetically imagining themselves into a variety of different characters, but mm -hmm. it's all being generated from itself, even yes. though it doesn't always feel like that. So yeah. how we're 
that connection between ways we're imagining ourselves into other people mm -hmm. and and where that's being generated from is always it's, it's kind of wonderfully complex. <laughs> I think so. I think so. And it's an endless subject of inquiry. I think for me as a poet is this concept of the self and how do we understand it and um, particularly because I'm you know a, I'm a child of many worlds poetically as well as just geographically. Um, and I read a lot of different language, you know, English language traditions of poetry, even some non in translation, obviously. You know, I'm, I'm just fascinated by that. I think because of people's, um, in many ways, people's love of poetry, but, but that they see it as a very kind of, sometimes something high and truthful, mm -hmm. just good in a way, but I, I think sometimes it gets in the way of understanding that a, po a poem doesn't, always have to be telling the truth in the way yes. a journalistic article, for oh, instance, yeah. might yeah. have a duty to do that, um, or that that truth is a many, many multifaceted kind of idea that there could be emotional truth in a poem that right. isn't, isn't a factual description of a, sure. a circumstance. Um, which it sounds to me like you're exploring in all these. I do, things. you know, and at the same time as I as I very freely admit that a lot of the impulses do originate in the self, but I think if it only ends there, then then the poem is uh, an act of narcissism, perhaps. Mm. So mm. it seems important to me to wherever you begin from, honor that impulse, but you you make it bigger, and so sometimes people have an easier time with sort of documentary poetry. And I think that, that it, then you require to, you have to find a way toward the self, lest it not become journalism. Yeah. Or if you start, as I often do, in a more lyric poem, which is very much the lyric poem tradition, is the self, you know, writ large. But then you have to open it up. You have to go out and find the world in the self. Otherwise, the poem, I think, doesn't succeed. Either way, and I'm just using those as kind of very rudimentary binaries, you know, for ways to think about um, how this operates. There's a tension, I think, between the self and the world that needs to exist in the poem, no matter where it begins. So, and that's that's interesting to me too, um, to explore, as I said, sometimes a bit more self-consciously in this, in uh, just uh, even in a couple poems in this book than I have before. Um, and, you know, that comes out of a love, as I was saying earlier, of romanticism, as opposed to modernism or postmodernism, and I, I like to borrow from all traditions, but I don't necessarily feel as some of my contemporaries do in the United States um, that the self is something to be feared and that emotion is something to be feared. Um, I, I think I trust in those things more as a poet, and I do think that's where I am a romantic, quote unquote, is that I'm not as attracted to that idea that everything must constantly be ironicized. Um, I like irony, but it has its place. <laughs> yeah. And I like feeling, too. And I, I think those are also truths. Uh, I would say when you were saying about truth, um, the, the thing is that there's many truths, you know, plural. Mm -hmm. so. mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> I'm quite keen to ask you a little bit about men and women in poetry or the male yeah. voice and the female voice yeah. or character in, in your poems because we were talking a little bit about that you've you've been exploring um, throughout your career the voice of women, women or different, mm -hmm. different women and and it's interesting I think then to think about the Burns book and 
imagining your way into a man and a mm -hmm. man voice. And, and I suppose also in terms of, um, you know, obviously uh, everywhere, but it, it's felt from here, especially in America, that these issues of race and the tensions in, uh, you know, just the America I grew up in, and it feels like certain things have exploded yeah. out in a way yeah. that is very, very difficult, but in some ways it feels kind of he healthy that these things are not police brutality and violence, for, example, for instance, yes, are yes. coming to life a little bit more that, you know, thank God at least people are paying attention and maybe right. in a way they haven't been. Right. Um, so with all that in mind, yes, uh, yes. I'm just thinking about, you know, this idea that we can go back in poems with our imagination into looking at some of these gender and race issues and from the past and, and yet it will still be speaking very much that's to things that are exactly going on right. today. Yeah, for me that's exactly right. Is um, you know, I know that there are contemporary poets and, you know, um, actually one of them I just you know, chatted with, you know, was sort of um, saying, Oh, why do all why are, why are all black poets, you know, going to the past and you know, she writes about the present moment and she's very defensive about that stance. And I said, Well I think that's a wonderful stance to take. I said However, I speak as a, you know, as a black poet who is interested in the past. And I said, I think it's because I hear the reverberations into the present. And I like to have that connection made. It's not that I don't want to talk about brutality or racism or I'm running away from it. It's exactly the opposite. Or that I don't want to talk about gender or, you know, this kinds of consciousness. I want it to be clear that this has been going on forever. <laughs> yeah. And it didn't just begin when I arrived on this planet, or Ferguson isn't the first time, you know, um, lynchings throughout the, the, throughout the history of America have been going on, and that's what we're seeing still in police, police brutality in the United States against black men and black boys uh, who are being gunned down, and I don't want that to seem like something new. I want it to be clear um, that this is an ongoing history that we're reckoning with. So for me, that's the reason the past is worth returning to. Um, I'm also just, you know, a lover of storytelling, and I love the the, um, the the story and the bigger story, the archetype, and I think that that's what history is for me as well. And that's why, I mean, I do reckon with the profound irony that here I am giving voice to Burns. Does he really need it? Right, mm -hmm. as most as much as someone else might, um, it's no doubt part of the reason that there are going to be other voices in the book, and there needs to be a conversation then. And for me, it's never been an either or. You know, um, I love a lot of male poets and their voices, and a lot of them are, you know, these European male poets. I listened to early on as a poet and was influenced by Keats, notably, um, Stevens a little bit later. That whatever their politics as humans were, it's clear to me they would have had no regard for me personally. I've met male poets in this life who have absolutely none, or if they do, it's for none of the reasons I might wish. I am not an equal to them. I am not an intellectual. I mean, that still persists. Those issues have not gone anywhere. So, and, and there are male poets, by the way, who that's not true of. Let me be very clear about yeah. that, too, yeah. because... So, you know, for me, I take whatever I can and I get from people whatever is the best in them. I try to live my life that way and I try to live my art that way so that I take from Keats and Stevens what they have to offer me and to teach me. I take that from Burns, you know, and then I make of it what I can through my own lens. And so that lens is definitely as 
you know, mixed race, black, white looking black, Jamaican American with some Venezuelan. I mean, you know, whatever those amalgamations of peoples are in me, plus my own whatever sensibilities I have as a poet, you know, attachments to language, um, attach all of that. I think that's what makes each of us. I think it's interesting this, which I feel like I have heard a few other poets who come over from America mention, but this idea that maybe there's a, a feeling among some of the poetry circles in America that this fear of the the I and the yeah, kind of definitely. confessional or, or emotive poem. Yes, I think there is some of that for sure. Yeah. But do you think... I, I'm curious about whether that comes from a kind of top-down, traditional, you know, the university, the old white man who's been there, done that, and needs to, to get the eye out of the way now, whereas for a lot of, again, other, other people who haven't had that platform yet in that same way, it still feels like, wait, we haven't even had a chance to ex- explore that properly, or is it about, sometimes I wonder if it's about women's, women's voices versus men's voices, or is it just that happened to be a, a, the politics of the moment? I think it's all over the place, Jennifer. Mm. I mean, I don't trouble myself too much worrying about um, this notion of um, other than insofar as you know, sometimes people bring it to your doorstep and then you have to address <laughs> it. But as far as when I'm writing, I'm not really paying that much attention yeah. to these things. I think there, there's a complicated um, series of things that have occurred, probably having to do with sometimes what you first said, which is maybe at a certain point, um, white men who you know were the primary writers of poetry and publishers of poetry and still are would have had more of a vantage point, and so they tired of it, as you say. Well, I'm a little more cynical and think that what actually happened is that as women's voices and minority voices rose up um, and became part of the conversation, then that became old school. The idea of speaking of the self became not that interesting. And so I think there's part of that, I think, but I do think sometimes it's just... You know, I, I won't even say that that's the totality of it because there are lots and lots of women and black poets who write in this exact, or minority writers who write in this very fragmentary, what I would say is a kind of decontextualized manner. Um, it's become quite fashionable in some circles. You gain a lot of attention. It's the same, tr- you know, it's the same questions I would imagine. I don't know, but in the UK, between what's considered literary and what's not. So it's always been that way, I think, that the, if something is accessible, if the language, if the voice is accessible, there are always going to be scholars who can't find the depth in it unless they themselves get to exert their intelligence upon it and make it up and are less interested in that work. And that, I think, has guided the kind of forms of poetry as much as anything else. So it's all those things you've said, yeah. but I think the proximity of creative writers to scholars has probably, and the division between those two things, remembering that at some points, as fraught as it were, poets were also the primary critics. Now that role has been seeded, the rise of theory and particularly deconstruction theory in the you know the literary halls in the 80s. I mean, I, I'm not a social historian, but I can look as somebody who's spent a lot of time in this world and say, there's too many causalities to be able to pin one down mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. I could say that probably influenced it, that influenced it, that did, you know, all of those things. At the end of the day, as a writer, 
I just try to shut that out. <laughs> yeah. That is noise yeah. that I don't need in my head. Yeah. You know, I need to think about what I care about, and I keep trying to hold on to that. What made me a writer before I knew any of that nonsense? Yeah. I was 20 years old, I had no idea about those things. What I knew was what I liked. And that's what I come back to is, I know what I like. I've always had strong taste as a reader. When I was an undergraduate and I was presented with, you know, different texts, I was very opinionated <laughs> about what I liked and what I didn't. And I listened to try to understand why you liked something I didn't, but it didn't mean that I necessarily needed to then relinquish my own subjectivity as a reader. And I'm the same as a writer, you know. I, I can learn from others and I borrow whatever is useful. I'm not willing to, I don't want to get stuck but I'm also not willing to just adopt something because everybody says that's the wonder of what poetry is now. And it leaves me some of it just absolutely cold. I don't, you know, yeah, John Ashbery is an interesting poet. I don't really love much of his work. And I don't agree that he's the best poet of the 20th century. I just don't. I don't even agree with that phraseology. Why do we need a best poet? Because what that means is if it, if Ashbery doesn't speak to your whole being, then you somehow are not in the correct placement in the hierarchy. And that's really at core what irritates me about these discussions, is they often resolve to these hierarchical you know, categories still that we're erecting, where somebody's at the center and everybody else is in the distal points, or someone's at the top and everything else trickles down from there. I refuse that. I just refuse it. And I say, great for Ashbery, and if he works for you, great. I'm over here reading Glick or Liesl Mueller or, you know, Svetaeva or Avachai or, you know, anybody who is speaking to me. Yeah. And that's who I'm going to spend most of my time with. And there's enough poetry to go around. <laughs> I think that is a, that is a brilliant... <laughs> exactly uh, what everyone needs to keep in their mind. We're all often here at the library, you know, we get people who say, oh, I don't like poetry, I don't like poetry. I say, you yeah. just haven't found the right poem. I agree. <laughs> I, I agree 150%. The Parable of Shit and Flowers. I not the Lord. If I turn down a cheek, is my ass then going get? You? From time you was nickel bit, you pick up one ugly bug and call it beautiful. You stop for chat with every sore foot man in the street. Even how you is big woman, come in like you forget what people can do. Gal, you too trusting. I did tell you that long time, but I see now you're hard of hearing. You're ignorant, subtle, and I know what to do with you. You don't even watch news. Stick your head in sand like ostrich. Child, life not easy for true. You choose to believe is only better rose. But hear me, I did grow then. And what you have to put in dirt stink to rass. But it's what make them come up. podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk 
Follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live and find us on Facebook.